Kia ora tato. Nga mihi nui. It's great to be here. Um, thank you to the Ministry for Culture and Heritage and for the National Library for the talk series. Um, I'm particularly pleased to be part of the series this year with the um, celebration of 125 years of women's suffrage. I think it's a really nice bridge between the work I have done in the past on Polly Plum, Mary Ann Coakley, um, and the work I'm currently doing, which is a history of women in Parliament. Um, next year, you may be aware, is the centenary of women getting the right to sit in Parliament. Very little has been done about it. Um, I'm going to try and rectify that with a, uh, with a book coming out next year. But that'll be another talk, perhaps for another day. Uh, my talk today is from the perspective of being uh, Marianne Coakley's biographer. You'll probably be more aware of her nom de plume. Um, I used the, her nom de plume for the title of the biography. It was published last year by Otago University Press. Polly Plum, a firm and earnest woman's advocate, Marianne Coakley, 1836 to 1885. The subtitle, A Firm and Earnest Woman's Advocate, are her words. Um, and she said she was content and grateful to be so considered by others. As you'll have gathered from the title of today's talk, I think it's timely to reevaluate Polly Plum's contribution to the first wave of feminism in New Zealand. I'm going to start with a question. I'm assuming, if you haven't already, you will after this, that you've at least read the uh, Dictionary of New Zealand Biography on Polly Plum, so you know something about her. But I'm going to start with a question that I want you to keep in the back of your minds, uh, and we'll go back to that later on in this talk. The beginning of the organised women's movement in the 19th century New Zealand is generally attributed to the establishment of the Women's Christian Temperance Union in 1885. In her book Standing in the Sunshine, Sandra Coney attributes the successful establishment throughout the country of branches of the Women's Christian Temperance Union to the fact that an awareness of women's rights already existed in New Zealand. So my question is, where did that awareness come from? How did it develop? How did those women who readily joined the Women's Christian Temperance Union in 1885, most of them aged in their 30s, 40s and 50s, how did they come to some awareness, some politicised understanding of their position in society, of their shared collective identity as women, sufficient to organise together for social change on the basis of that shared collective and politicised identity. So keeping that in mind, I want to talk about Polly Plum and reassess her role and contribution to first wave feminism. Firstly, I'm enormously grateful for the early work of historians that brought Polly Plum to our attention. She appears in the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography, uh, sorry, the uh, Encyclopedia of New Zealand, published in 1966, where Alexander McClintock says, although her work has been overlooked and forgotten, Mary Ann Coakley was one of the earliest and certainly among the most talented of feminist leaders in this country. She next appears in Judith Elphick's 1972 master's thesis, A Social Portrait of Colonial Auckland, where she's described as an active feminist. Judith Elphick, now Malone, picks up her story again in her article, What's Wrong with Emma? The Feminist Debate in Colonial Auckland. First published in 1975 in the New Zealand Journal of History, and then reprinted in the first volume of Women in History, edited in 1986, 
by Barbara Brooks, Charlotte MacDonald and Margaret Tennant. By then, she's described as coming into public view in 1870, causing heated public controversy for her outspoken attacks on the contemporary position of women, keeping up the fight for about two years, but the debates dying away as quickly as they'd flared up. By 1993, she's described in the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography as a feminist and social reformer, and as a highly controversial public figure for a few years only. That same year, she's in Charlotte MacDonald's History of Feminist Writing in New Zealand, titled The Vote, The Pill and the Demon Drink, where she's described as one of a few isolated advocates speaking to an indifferent, bemused or apparently complacent public, one of those isolated voices whose writings, although read and discussed, did not prompt widespread agitation, sudden changes in the law or even a sustained debate on the position of women. So that was the evaluation of her contribution to the first wave of feminism made 25 years ago when we were celebrating the centenary of women's suffrage. Over those 25 years, I've had the privilege of researching her life extensively, culminating in the public publication of a full-length biography last year. Along the way, I've presented conference papers and public seminars about her life and work, as well as articles in academic journals covering a wide range of issues, such as the identities of 19th century advocates of women's rights, media representations of feminists in the 19th century, women journalists, women writing under pseudonyms, the For the Ladies columns in the Weekly News, identifying Marianne Coakley as the author of an early New Zealand novel, a comparison of her newspaper journalism with that of her daughters, her role in reframing philanthropy from benevolence to social reform in New Zealand and in Melbourne, and a topic of particular relevance to today's talk, her role in the emergence of feminist consciousness in 19th century New Zealand. Over this time, I've been able to correct some factual errors in what we know of her life and to vastly expand what we know of her life, her work, her activism, her contacts and networks, and her writings. We are now in a much stronger position to appreciate the influence she had, not just for the handful of years she was a controversial voice in Auckland and Melbourne, but the influence she had on her contemporaries and, importantly, on a rising generation of feminists who were to take up the cause of women and become part of an organised women's movement in the mid-1880s. So as I share some of the lesser-known aspects of her contributions to women's history, particularly her writing, and as we celebrate 125 years of women's suffrage, I want to leave you with a much stronger sense of the importance of her contribution to the first wave of feminism in New Zealand. Let's start with Polly Plum's name. Her real name, that is, rather than her nom de plume. When I first started researching Polly Plum as part of my doctorate in the early 1990s, I thought her married name was Mary Colclo. That's how I'd heard it pronounced. Knowing her husband was from Irish lineage, I looked up a book of names and saw that the pronunciation of her surname was Colclough. So I started referring to her as Mary Colclough, and no one knew who I was talking about. 
The Coakley pronunciation was first heard through a chance encounter between one of my brothers and a work colleague. This work colleague was doing postgraduate study at the University of Canterbury, which is where I took my degrees. My brother proudly referred to my doctoral thesis, mentioning Polly Plum in the process. To his amazement, his colleague announced that she was the great-granddaughter of Polly Plum. He hadn't made the connection at first because she referred to the surname Coakley instead of Cole Clough or Cole Clough. So I figured her descendants must know what they were talking about, and she became Mary Coakley. This pronunciation was subsequently confirmed through two different sources. One was a newspaper article relating to her son, William Caesar Sarsfield Coakley, which referred to Coakley, C-O-K-E-L-Y, in brackets after his name, as a guide to the correct pronunciation. The other was the teacher's board in the reception area at Tuaco School, where Mary Ann taught between 1872 and 1873. The teacher's board read Mrs. Coakley, C-O-A-K-L-E-Y, which suggests it was written from an oral source. And you'll note also that the dates on the teacher's board are incorrectly recorded as 1870 to 1874. As for knowing she was Mary Ann and not Mary, the first signal was that she always signed her name, M.A.Coakley. But there are a number of informal references in the newspapers of her as Mary Ann, as well as official records, such as the English census and her marriage certificate and death certificate, as well as in several pieces of personal correspondence I had access to from her descendants. The reason I've given this detail is not just to correct the record on her Christian name and the pronunciation of her surname, although that, of course, is very important. When writing a biography, obviously we start with what is already on the public record, but we need to be mindful that what is already known may not always be correct, like Mary Ann's name, or when she came to New Zealand, which was 1857, not 1859, as is recorded in most sources. But what we know already may be correct, but not the full story and therefore be misleading. Having said that, it's one thing to correct the information, but another thing for the correct versions to make their way into usage. But it's also a classic example of serendipity at work. Meeting Polly Plum's great-granddaughter gave me an opportunity to interview some elderly relatives who have since passed, and to access some private letters and a few miscellaneous items that have been very useful. There wasn't that old suitcase full of private correspondence or diaries that a biographer dreams about, but there was one letter that was a real boon and opened up a whole new understanding of Mary Ann's significance as an early New Zealand novelist. We'll talk more about that in a little while. In my opening comments, I mentioned that the descriptor in the Encyclopedia of New Zealand entry for Mary Ann Coakley is a feminist leader. And in the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography entry, it's feminist and social reformer. As her biographer, I would add writer and educationalist. In each of these fields, as a feminist, as a feminist leader, as a social reformer, as a writer, and as an educationalist, she stood out from her contemporaries and made a significant contribution to women's history.
Her work in all these fields is relevant to her wider contribution to first wave feminism. But in the interests of time, I want to talk about some relatively unknown aspects of her life as a writer and to single out just one aspect of her social reform work, that is her work with female prisoners, as a way to focus on her influence and contribution to first wave feminism. The most well-known fact about Mary Ann Coakley is that as well as presenting public lectures on women's rights, she engaged in voluminous newspaper correspondence for several years in the late 1860s into early 1870s under her nom de plume Polly Plum. And thanks to papers past, a lot of this is now very readily accessible. Less appreciated is that as well as writing letters to the newspapers, Mary Ann Coakley was a journalist, a fiction writer, and also wrote several plays. As she herself pointed out, there was a very limited sphere for female writers at the time, and she valued the encouragement she received for her literary endeavours from close personal friends, such as journalist, newspaper owner and politician Julius Vogel, and publisher and newspaper proprietor Henry Brett. She was well known in literary circles in Auckland during the 1860s, and by the age of 33 in 1869, she could assert her status as a well-established writer. By this time, she had two short stories published in serialised form in newspapers, one of which had been developed and published as a novel, as well as several pieces published and paid for in England and in America. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to find yet any of the work published in England and America. The first of the short stories was titled The Half Cast Wife and is most likely to have been published in a single issue of the Auckland Weekly Argus, early in 1865. The second of the short stories was titled Alone in the World, and a partial version of this was also published in the Auckland Weekly Argus, with the first instalment appearing on 26th of August, 1865. Fifteen instalments were published over the next four months, before the Auckland Weekly Argus ceased publication. Unfortunately, there are no known extant copies of that newspaper. Mary Ann Coakley's name was not attached to Alone in the World. It's simply stated by the author of The Half-Cast Wife. With the encouragement of publishers Mitchell and Seffern of Wyndham Street, Auckland, the story Alone in the World was finished and published in May 1866 as a novel comprised of 28 chapters under the extended title, Alone in the World, A Tale of New Zealand. The original is a beautiful book, a small green leather bound book printed on gilt edged lightweight paper. There's a copy here in the Alexander Turnbull Library, one down at the Hocken Library in Dunedin, and one at the Auckland War Memorial Museum Library. Last year, I had the opportunity to edit a reprint of Alone in the World complete with explanatory notes and an introduction as part of the New Zealand Colonial Texts series. And there are a limited number of copies for purchase through the Department of English at the University of Otago. I haven't got time to tell you the story of how I identified Mary Ann Coakley as the author of the novel, but you can read a version of that story in an article I wrote for the Turnbull Library Record in 2004, which is now available online as part of the Papers Past magazines and journal section. Better still, read the full story 
and the reprinted novel itself, which is available here at National Library, or you can purchase your own copy from the Department of English at Otago. Apart from a passing mention in the Oxford History of New Zealand Literature, Alone in the World has been overlooked in discussions of early New Zealand literature. It is one of the earliest examples of a melodramatic romance sensation novel published in New Zealand by a female author. In fact, there are only two New Zealand novels by female authors published prior to Alone in the World. Both were published in London, and neither of the authors of these two novels resided in New Zealand. Alone in the World is typical of the sensation novels that emerged in England in the late 1860s. It has plot lines centred on crimes and a secret past that separate the hero and heroine, presumed adultery, bigamy and illegitimacy, marriages of convenience, wife desertion, the unravelling of a mystery, sudden turns of fortune and multiple false identities. It's got it all. The characterisation is Dickensian and the representations of social class in this tale of colonial New Zealand tease out the tensions between newfound freedoms from social constraints and the loss of English standards, tempered with a thinly veiled critique of English reserve. Having read it more than a dozen times, I think it's a fabulous story. I'm not the least bit biased, of course, um, but I think it would make an excellent film script. Mary Ann Coakley's fictional writing also included the novelette Effie's Inheritance, published in serialised form in the monthly journal The Christian Times between May 1870 and April 1871. Unfortunately, you'll get the drift here, there are no extant copies of The Christian Times. So there's certainly a lot of work to be done to establish Marianne's place in the history of New Zealand literature. I want to turn now to Marianne Coakley's contribution to social reform. The phrase social reformer sounds rather dated these days. Today we would probably think of her as a social activist or possibly as a social worker. Like some of her contemporaries, she was active on a range of social issues, including temperance, uh, as a visitor to the lunatic asylum and the prison, but she also ran what we would now refer to as employment agencies in both Auckland and later in Melbourne, where she also ran a lodging house for young women who came to the city to find paid work. In all these areas, she was motivated by the need to provide opportunities for girls and women to better their lives. In singling out her work with female prisoners, I want to demonstrate how her efforts in this area encapsulate the many facets of her identity, her feminism, being a feminist leader, who work as a social reformer, as a writer, and as an educationalist. Mary Ann was a regular visitor to the women's department of the Mount Eden Jail. In fact, her name was put forward by several people in August 1871 as a candidate for a formal role as missionary to the Auckland Asylum Hospital and Mount Eden Jail. It was non-conformist minister Reverend Samuel Edger, who proposed the role of missionary. Samuel Edger was father of Kate Edger, the first woman in the British Empire to gain a Bachelor of Arts degree. Mary Ann knew Kate personally. As a young woman, Kate performed as part of the entertainment at several of Mary Ann's public lectures. If I had to describe Mary Ann's work with female prisoners in one word, it would be comprehensive. 
Through, an earlier through her earlier voluntary work in England and through her contacts with women involved in the women's movement there, she was familiar with the work of English prison reformers Elizabeth Fry and Sarah Martin. Inspired by the work of these women, Mary Ann wrote several lengthy letters to the newspapers in the early 1870s, drawing attention to the need for reform in the women's section of Mount Eden Jail. As was the case in the Auckland Asylum, the jail made no real effort to classify prisoners, so moral and decent married women, who through financial pressure, often brought about by their husbands having deserted them or being incompetent providers, were imprisoned for unpaid debts or for having resorted to pawning work entrusted to them in order to put food on the table for their children. These women would often be incarcerated along with young fallen women who were serving a first sentence alongside the old and hardened offenders. Mary Ann suggested that the visiting ladies could befriend the decent married women and seek their cooperation in reforming the young girls. Often these women were not very different to the women visitors themselves. They were just as chaste and often just as horrified at the vices some of the young women had succumbed to. They needed friends, not judges, as did the young women. Both classes of prisoners needed help to get back on their feet, so it made sense to Mary Ann's mind for the married women to assist in rehabilitating the young girls. On occasions, Mary Ann represented the young women in court, offering to assist them in finding suitable work and accommodation. Mary Ann also had an eye on the upstairs section of the women's prison, which had a good-sized, well-lit dormitory and a fireplace, perfect in her view for a day school dedicated to teaching the young girls how to read, write and sew. There was also the problem of the young children of women in prison. Some up to the age of two or three were locked up with their mothers and were spending their formative years surrounded by criminal influences rather than being sent to the home for destitute children. On several occasions, Mary Ann fostered these young children in her own home. She also proposed using the old mission station at Kohimarama and several buildings previously used by St John's College to establish a reformatory. The buildings were a suitable distance from town and there was sufficient room for these women, whose lives had been devastated by addiction to alcohol, to be accommodated in separate quarters from the younger women. Perhaps even a practical day and boarding school could be established to train the young women up for domestic service positions. Then there was the issue of providing opportunities for women on their release from jail. These women carried the stigma of having served a prison sentence and had few avenues for legitimate employment. Mary Ann came up with a scheme whereby money was raised by public donation to provide a bond to shopkeepers to secure outwork for these women, <coughs> generally sewing or washing. So where others saw rogues and vagabonds and fallen women, Mary Ann Coakley saw clever needlewomen and capable domestic servants, women who, whether by misfortune, mistakes, restricted employment opportunities, the constraints of social convention and public prejudice, or a combination of these factors, found themselves on the wrong side of the law and needed some practical material assistance, as well as support and encouragement, to start afresh and have an opportunity to establish some level of economic independence and get their lives on track. 
When Mary Ann's criticisms of the scandalous conditions for female prisoners at Mount Eden Jail were ignored by prison authorities in the Provincial Council, she went public and wrote to the newspapers. The rooms were over full, the day room was woefully inadequate, and the awning set up in the yard to compensate for the lack of room inside was used during the day by the women picking oakum, a tedious task unwinding rope so the strands could be reused. Between the oakum pickers, the large wash house where women and girls did all the washing for the jail, asylum, hospital and refuge, and the lines of drying washing, there was no room for exercise. This is how she described the scene. When I was reading to the women the other day under the awning, a bundle of blankets was brought in from the hospitals, so disgusting and pestiferous, I was glad to close my book and beat a retreat into the matron's quarters. Now just think of the condition of some 25 to 30 human creatures shut up amongst these infected clothes with no other air to breathe for three or four days in the week other than that impregnated with their pestilential odour. For these things are not got rid of from Monday morning till about Friday when the last are dry. But the prison authorities regarded Mary Ann as an irritant and barred her from further visits to Mount Eden Jail on the pretext that she had not followed proper protocol in airing her concerns. Mary Ann responded by drawing attention to this institutional bullying. She publicly questioned the power of the prison authorities to ban people from visiting, reminding the public through the newspaper columns that the prison was a public institution and that it should not be reliant on information from members of the public regarding abuses. But where these were drawn to the authorities' attention, they should be acted upon. In describing the, work of the, the scope of her work with female prisoners in some detail, I've tried to convey the comprehensive nature of her feminism and her approach to social reform. Underlying her activism was a strong feminist analysis of the systemic nature of women's subordinate position, embedded in law, custom and attitudes. Much of her polemic writing focused on the need for women to be educated and supported to be self-reliant. Yes, women's first duty was to be wives and mothers, but circumstances often dictated that they needed to be the breadwinners. Women did not need charity, they needed the opportunity to be economically independent. In my remaining time, I want to return to the question I posed earlier and think about the women from across New Zealand who so readily joined the various branches of the Women's Christian Temperance Union that were established from 1885, particularly those who became involved in the franchise departments that were formed in local temperance unions from 1887, when Kate Shepherd was appointed National Superintendent of the Franchise and Legislation Department in the Campaign for Women's Suffrage. How did these women develop some awareness of women's rights and how did they develop what we might now call a feminist consciousness? And importantly, what was Polly Plum's role in this process? A key element in the development of feminist consciousness is the awareness of contradictions about one's position in society. A a Polly Plum's writings fundamentally exposed those contradictions. A constant theme was the ways in which legal and social constraints limited women's sphere of influence, even in their primary roles as wives and mothers. 
inadequate education and limited respectable employment opportunities reduced women's capacity to provide for themselves and their families when circumstances forced them to do so. It is significant that most of Polly Plum's writings explicitly targeted a female readership and that many were reprinted in the ladies' columns, particularly in the weekly news. The weekly news was published in Auckland, which by the late 1860s was the second largest population centre in New Zealand. Like women's magazines, the women's pages of newspapers are gendered spaces. On the one hand, they reinscribe gendered stereotypes, but they can also act as spaces in which readers are exposed to competing and often contradictory ideas about women's natures and roles, and this was certainly the case when Polly Plum's writings started to dominate these columns. It is significant too that many of Polly Plum's earlier pieces were quite conservative in content, that she always emphasised that women's primary duties were those as wives and mothers, and that she frequently expressed her very strong Christian beliefs. Scores of women and men went to hear her public lectures, which were often chaired by respectable members of the clergy. At her first public lecture in June 1871, His Excellency the Governor and Lady Bowen gave their patronage, and the reserved seats were filled with many of the prominent public men in Auckland. As well as women's rights, Mary Ann also lectured on topics such as girls' education, temperance, self-culture, religion and English history. And she spoke on many other public occasions, such as temperance meetings and at public entertainments. She was a highly educated middle-class Englishwoman with excellent elocution and was a very knowledgeable and forceful public speaker. All these factors conferred a degree of reasonableness, acceptability and legitimacy for her views. From 1868, she had built up a loyal readership and over time, as she became more outspoken on women's rights, she brought that following along with her. It was by no means a passive relationship And unlike many of the women who wrote in the 1890s and early 1900s for the temperance magazines, The White Ribbon and The Prohibitionist, Mary Ann wrote for and engaged directly with the public. As readers wrote in response to her articles, letters and lectures, she wrote back and engaged directly with the issues and questions they raised. But what of women outside Auckland? What exposure might they have had to Polly Plum's views? Although nowhere near as extensive as the coverage in the Auckland newspapers, a search of papers past reveals that from mid-1871, various newspapers in most regions throughout the country reported on her public lectures, and many followed her progress until she returned from Melbourne in early 1876. Beyond Auckland, she lectured on women's rights in Alexandra, later named Parongia, Coromandel, Grahamstown, Hamilton, Naruwahia, Otahu, and Thames. Her views on female servants and her controversial letter in 1873 to the Times on the fallacies of female immigration received widespread attention in the newspaper press throughout New Zealand. Reviews of her public lectures, newspaper correspondence and activities in Melbourne from October 1874 and throughout 1875 were reported across Victoria and in other parts of Australia, as well as in newspapers throughout New Zealand. There are traces in the historical record of individual women whose lives changed 
because of her activities, and I refer to a number of these in the biography. We can be very sure that as a teacher in both private and state schools for more than 25 years, Marianne Coakley made a difference to countless women and their daughters. In the 1860s and the 1870s, she was widely known for her innovative teaching methods and her commitment to providing girls with a thorough education to enable them to face the uncertainties of adult life. Whether through kind words of encouragement to women serving prison sentences, accompanying them to court hearings, receiving them in her home upon their release, looking after their children in her own home, or assisting them in gaining employment, she made a difference to the lives of many individual women who found themselves on the wrong side of the law. Most of the women she helped remain nameless. A notable exception was Ellen Ellis. Encouraged by the writings of Polly Plum, Ellen Ellis worked hard to overcome the stigma of the label incorrigible dunce that she bore while growing up. Through a determined program of self-education, she made her first tentative steps into the public arena by writing letters to the newspapers under the anonymity of a pen name to express her views on women's position. By 1882, she was sufficiently confident to step up as a leader in the nascent women's movement in Auckland, organising a series of meetings for women to protest the contagious diseases legislation. In 1882, Ellen Ellis also published what is now considered to be the first overtly feminist novel published in New Zealand titled Everything is Possible to Will. We cannot know how many others there were like her, or like poor Emma, who began demanding her rights after reading Polly Plum's articles and letters and attending one of Marianne Coakley's lectures. The tributes according, accorded to Marianne's social reform work when she left Auckland certainly confirm that she made a difference in many individual lives. Marianne Coakley did not have an opportunity to join the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She died while on holiday in Picton in early March 1885, just when Mrs Mary Leavitt from the Women's National Christian Temperance Union of America was partway through her lecturing tour to establish branches of the union throughout New Zealand. But the Auckland branch of the Women's Christian Temperance Union acknowledged Polly Plum as one who loved to serve. The folding wooden chair they had inscribed with Polly Plum is part of the Auckland War Memorial Museum collection and is currently on display as part of the Are We There Yet? exhibition to mark 125 years of women's suffrage. In her time, opponents of women's rights considered Marianne Coakley a rabid revolutionist and she was subjected to all sorts of abuse in the columns of the newspapers, often by newspaper editors. But 15 years after her death, she paled in comparison to what were then considered more radical contemporary feminist voices. In an 1889 article titled The Old and New Woman, it was stated, as showing how times change and women change with them, it may be stated that 30 years ago, when Polly Plum, Mrs Coakley, first took up the crusade for women's rights in Auckland, she was positively boycotted and socially ostracised by many of her sex. Today, Polly would be a hidebound conservative who would be told by a sibyl of the National Council of Women that drift was better than stagnation and not to be afraid of Mrs Grundy. Polly Plum was certainly not afraid of the proverbial Mrs Grundy, that arbiter of social etiquette, 
and she was certainly not one to settle for drift. When she determined that the debates over women's rights had degenerated into tiresome reiteration and every possible argument had been advanced on both sides, she withdrew and relinquished her persona as Polly Plum and put more of her time and energy into practically assisting women in need. In the 25 years before the Women's Christian Temperance Union emerged as the public face of an organised women's movement, there were many opportunities for women to question long-held accepted views on women's place in society. Thanks to Polly Plum, debates on women's rights were particularly intense during the late 1860s and early 1870s, but wider debates around issues such as female immigration, girls' education and married women's property rights resurfaced many times across New Zealand over the decades. Public prejudices are always slow to break down, but incremental gains were made in changing perceptions and attitudes towards women's role and place in society. Increasing numbers of women were receiving higher levels of education, gaining experience and confidence in roles beyond those of wife and mother, and having greater levels of economic independence. Some men were changing too. Supporters of women's rights were speaking out in parliamentary debates on the need for women to have a stronger voice in public affairs and affirming the principle of women's equality with men. In 1902, politician, historian and poet William Pember Reeves reflected on the passing of women's suffrage in his book State Experiments in Australia and New Zealand. You may well be familiar with his often quoted line, so one fine morning of September 1893, the women of New Zealand woke up and found themselves enfranchised. His timing may have been several decades out, but Reeves got one part of that sentence correct. The women of New Zealand woke up, and Polly Plum helped them do it. Thank you. Okay, any questions from the floor? Um, I was just wondering what your focus of your um, doctorate was. Like, did you have a, a question that you wanted to find out the answer to about her life, or what led you into doing your doctorate on Polly Blum? Uh, what I was looking at um, three women in particular who were active prior to the establishment of an organised women's um, women's movement. So I looked at, uh, well then she was Mary Cole Clo, <laughs> uh, Mary Ann Coakley, um, Mary Muller, no it wasn't Mary Muller, cool, it's such a long time ago, I can't remember, Ellen Ellis and Mary Taylor who came over from um, England and then went back again in 1859. Yeah. You referred to an article you'd written about comparing her writing to her daughter's writing, so yes. what did her daughter do? Her daughter was very conservative. I was quite disappointed. Um, <laughs> she, uh, I called it like mother, like daughter, question mark, and the answer is not at all. Um, she wrote mostly for the uh, society pages, and um, mm, that probably says enough. There were, I, I did manage to um, find a couple of um, articles she wrote that had a hint of feminism, um, but no. Very disappointing. Um, but I was wondering, and I'm, I suppose I'm asking you to speculate, which you may not want to do, but I was wondering about um, had she stayed in England um, had she, uh, as opposed to coming out here, uh, can you think about um, how things 
um, whether she might have made a contribution mm. there or not. Mm. Uh, I think she would have been part of the Langham Place group for anyone who knows their um, you know, women's history in 1850s, 1860s. She knew Emily Faithful, who, um, who started up the Victoria Press, which was a, basically a, a feminist publishing company. Um, and she seemed to know a few people within those circles. So I think she would have been one of that crowd. Um, particularly, I think she would have got into publishing um, as well as teaching. I, I, I reflect at the, um, at either the beginning of the book or the end of the book, you know, um, where she could have gone if she was about now. And I think, you know, she could have, um, she could have been prime minister. She could have been the head of National Council of Women. She could have been. Um, had her own private school. She could have been the Minister for Education. She could have been a whole lot of things because um, she is someone who, um, and that's why I wanted to emphasise that we have a, we have a sense of her as a, as a uh, feminist, um, not quite so much as a feminist leader because there's a sense of, well, who did she lead? Um, but, um, but I think she, she, her contributions were in a range of areas. But had she not come to New Zealand, yeah, I think she would have been um, probably involved in um, early feminist publishing as well as probably um, a lifelong dedication to girls' education.